Hey everyone, today's Real Vision Daily Briefing is sponsored by Engrave, maker of the coldest hardware wallet, Zero, and stainless steel backup graphene. Engrave brings you the highest security in a touchscreen experience to safely manage all your crypto offline. Enjoy a 10% Real Vision discount in Engrave.io shop with the code REALVISION. Now to the top analysis of today's markets. Is everyone too complacent about inflation? Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. With me today is Dr. Sri Kumar, president of Sri Kumar Global Strategies. Hi, Sri. How are you? Good to be with you, Maggie. Good. I love having you on Fed Week because uh, there's a lot to talk about. We have Treasury yields inching lower again ahead of the Fed meeting. And it seems like the market is expecting some kind of dovish message or, or posture, uh, maybe even a hint at a May rate cut. What do you expect from Jay Powell this week? I'm expecting that it will be relatively dovish. And I will be actually, as an economist and a guy who cares the best for the economy, I would wish he does not repeat his speech of December, 20, uh, December 13th, when at the press conference, it was already the market was a rocket ship going up. And he lit it up even further and he sent it into space with uh, his dovish talk. That's not what we want from a Fed chairman at this stage. Inflation is still above target. We have lots of geopolitical uncertainties around, and I think it behooves the chairman to put more caution into his talk. Now, the question is, is he going to do that? I would be happy if he doesn't come out very dovish, even if he's balanced, Maggie. Mm. But what I'm expecting is, that he will definitely not sound hawkish tomorrow. So it's interesting. I mean, they are trying to walk a really fine balance, aren't they? One of the things they've said repeatedly, even in in his last, you know, very dovish delivery, of course, that's because they put the rate cuts on the dot plot, right? The radar. They sort of said that. So everybody declared that the pivot. But they've said and and kind of came out consistently in speeches afterwards saying, listen, we have time. We're going to take our time. We don't want this to be the 1970s. But you, you, you the, the sort of camps are divided again. And there are people who are concerned about that. And there are people who say, listen, these inflation numbers are coming down like a rock. I mean, this is, it's time. Don't wait too long. How How do they sift through these balance of risk? Do you think they'll actually wait? I mean, that market has something priced in five rate cuts. So if that's going right. to hold true, they, they, they expect them to start delivering pretty soon. How do you balance that? How, do you ba- how should we be thinking about inflation? Because that seems to be key. First of all, it is very difficult to do the balancing given that you had very different approaches from Powell on December 13th. And from John Williams, the head of the New York Fed, often considered to be the second most powerful person in the Fed hierarchy, he immediately said the same week that you should not expect quick rate cuts and a March rate cut expecting is premature. And we had a number of other Fed governors and uh, presidents of regional banks who repeated the same statement. So there has been a lot of confusion in terms of what the Fed is going to do. So in terms of how the market participants should be reacting to, 
you should not expect a rate cut in March. I think even for the most dovish members within the Fed, that would be excessive. But I think May, June, they will start to talk in terms of rate cuts taking place. That is where I think you have to watch how dovish it gets. So mm. tomorrow is not going to be very much of a newsmaker in terms of rate cuts. Where are you going to see something significant tomorrow will be any statement that is made about the pace of quantitative tightening. To give you a picture, uh, Maggie, this all began in the, with the increase in the balance sheet when Lehman Brothers failed in September 2008. The Fed's balance sheet was a mere $800 billion. Mm. It was the equivalent of about 5% of US GDP. That is 2007-2008. Look at it today. The balance sheet is $7.7 trillion. The US GDP is about $24 to $25 trillion. So we are at about 25% of GDP. And the Fed is thinking in terms of stopping the QT and essentially not cutting the balance sheet further. So what they are telling you is they are going to leave you at more and more easy situation with respect to the Fed. And I think that is dangerous for inflation. And that's something investors should consider as well. Let's talk about that a little bit. So you do think that maybe the market is too complacent about inflation? Because, I mean, this is, you know, you listen to most people, even people who worry that the market's ahead of themselves on rate cuts kind of acknowledge, listen, inflation is 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 headed down. I mean, inflation seems to be, we seem to be past that point. What would cause the inflation to come back? What would it look like? Where would it show up? What time frame? What do you worry about with that? I'll answer you. That, that's a great question, Maggie. Let me answer you in two or three parts. First of all, uh, controlling um, inflation, bringing it down when you look at sectors, is more like a whack-a-mole game. You hit on one side, it goes down, and then it comes up again elsewhere. But the major difference has been initially with COVID, the inflation came in goods, not in services. You did not go take plane rides. You did not go stay in hotels. And you didn't go to restaurants, but you bought a lot of goods at your home, preferably delivered at home. And that caused the goods prices to shoot up because the demand was focused on it. Since then, we have had goods inflation going down. Sometimes even the price level has gone down and the inflation has shifted over to services and more and more services are getting affected. Mm. I think we are now approaching a third stage, namely there are some components of goods such as fuel, which have come down significantly in price and food where the inflation is also lower than COVID days, which are going to reignite. The reason we have famines in different parts of the world due to the El Nino phenomenon, that's the weather related, and you have so many wars going, and any of those could push up energy prices. So those are the areas I think you want to be talking in terms of inflation picking up. So I'm saying that you've had the best time possible in terms of inflation mitigation, but it behooves you not just to extend present and then extrapolate to the future, you should look to see what could go wrong. And so many things appear negative in my eyes. Well, extend and pretend is a very popular pastime these days in many exactly. parts of the investing and economic landscape. 
but but if if that is the nature, and, and you're absolutely right, it does feel like whack-a-mole. We only have to look at the news headlines to understand the connection. You know, we see the Red Sea blocked off from shipping. You only, you know, it's very clear. Right. But correct me if I'm wrong, I thought that the inflation that the Fed or that central banks were more concerned with was what we call sticky inflation, that kind of inflation like wage inflation, which tends to never reverse, never mean revert, and that you you can't roll back and then creates a spiral of ever chasing prices higher, incomes higher. That's that's in their purview to affect when they have interest rates. Can interest rate policy impact things like supply disruptions? Wasn't that what the whole transitory conversation was about? conversation was exactly that. You're right. Interest rate policy is supposed to act on demand. It cannot create more food. It cannot bring more fuel into the country. But it what can do is to restrict your demand for food, restrict your demand for clothing or fuel. So that's the way interest rate policy works. You With higher interest rates, you're not able to buy a home. With higher interest rates, you're not able to get a loan to buy a car. And that's supposed to restrain demand. The problem is, I think the the distinction between demand and supply and what interest rates can work with is often misused. What do I mean by that? If you do have a supply disruption, as we had in 2020, 2021, it behooves the Fed, in a sense, to also not feed it by increasing the money supply and cutting zero to interest rates to zero, as we did. Because if there is a natural phenomenon that the food supply is reduced and supply bottlenecks develop, collectively, the society has to cut its demand and the Fed cannot come forth and artificially boost the demand. Why is that? If it does it, the Fed never knows how to cut back again. Mm. And once it leaves you at a much higher level of demand, much higher level of liquidity from which you never back off. Take the case of quantitative tightening. Now, the balance sheet is more than 25% of GDP, and they they don't want to stop quantitative tightening. They want to be able to end the balance sheet reduction instead. So those are the problems I think we are going through. Hey, everyone. We're going to take a quick break right now to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Yeah. And it's a great point. I mean, obviously, when we were in COVID, no one was working. People had to live. There was a different calculus to to the decisions that were made. Now that we're in a more normal time, if you see that sort of sporadic inflation, you know, the idea that you would juice it. So maybe it's not in the toolbox to eradicate it, but the idea that you're artificially pushing up demand exactly. with stimulus makes a lot of sense. And that's a really important distinction, I think. Uh, so we have a question. Um, I, I that 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 mirrors what I was thinking about. Um, oh, so many have come in. I've got to go down and find it uh, from the Mac, Macro Butler. Thank you guys, by the way, for putting such great questions in all the time. We love our chat. If you're not on the platform, come over and join us. You can sign up for free. Um, it's a, he's asking or she's asking, Sri, do you think the U.S. economy is heading into a sta- into stagflation? after the presidential election as government spending could fade after that? Um, I mean, it's an interesting question, especially when we're, we're grappling with this inflation 
potential problem. How are you thinking about the U.S., the outlook for the U.S. economy? That's a great question from the member of the audience, Maggie. I would tell him or her that I was forecasting stagflation in 2021, and I wrote in my weekend reports that 2022 was going to be a difficult year. We saw for a while that you lost money in both bonds and equities. That's what happens in a stagflation. Stagflation involves inflation in which bonds lose value. Stagflation involves slower growth in which your equities lose value, so you lose money on both. Mm. 2022, I think the Fed essentially uh, charged the economy up. We came back with equities and fixed income doing well toward the end of the year. In answer to the person's question, what happens after the elections? My guess is you are going toward a recession, whether it is a few months before the elections or a few months after. But as to whether that recession is combined with inflation picking up would depend upon what role fiscal and monetary policy are going to play. If they, my guess is after the elections, you don't care so much about a recession. You have either won the election or you have lost the election, and there is no immediate pressure politically to change. So I'm going to say very guardedly, cautiously, in answer to that question, you're probably going to have a recession very likely soon, but it will not be a stagflation like I forecast in 2020 and 2021. And, you know, I think that it's always important as we go through the election, first of all, we all have to really check ourselves and think and use our minds about what we're seeing and reading. But there's also the promise of everything. And then there's actually passing legislation. So you could have people say, promise you they're going to spend fiscal money every which way, but they actually have to do it. And as we know, Washington's pretty gridlocked, pretty dysfunctional right now. Right, exactly. So the, the promise of fiscal and the actual spending of that fiscal money are two different things which we have to keep an eye on. Uh, great question. By the way, there was such an interesting headline that just crossed when we we're talking about consumers and inflation and what they do with extra money. Um, I, I, I have not fact-checked this. I'm just reading it blind on air. So um, just take that into consideration. Austin experimented, the city of Austin experimented with giving people $1,000 a month and they spent it on housing. Isn't that interesting? Um, mm. I think it shows how much that a couple pieces of um, the cost of living just so affect so many people. And you can go out and spend it on stuff or on, you know, luxury or whatever, on, on experiences. They spent it on housing. I mean, it's- I, I, my guess would have been healthcare, but that would probably that's probably a close second. Uh, right. So um, this is another fantastic question uh, from uh, Chad. Uh, finally, waves of layoffs are being announced, and unemployment may rise up. How will this factor into the Fed's view on inflation risks and rate cut schedule? And that's an important one to ask because we've seen this. The team and I behind the scenes have been talking about this steady drumbeat of layoff announcements. UPS is the latest today, 12,000 people. But we, but they've been pretty frequent. They're not getting a, a lot of pickup on, I would say, sort of a national news level. It tend to be more localized where it's happening, where the companies are headquartered. But we have seen companies very quick to lay off people. How does that impact the Fed? Uh, so far, that part 
the layoff news is coming anecdotally, as you mentioned, with UPS being the most recent. But on the other side, the macro numbers are suggesting the number of open jobs available, which was published today at 10 o'clock Eastern time. It is known as the JOLTS report and mm. also comes from the Bureau of Labor Statistics, showed that you have 9 million open jobs which are currently available. And at the same time, every job on average in the United States has only 0.7 worker available to it. Or the reciprocal of that, every worker has 1.4 jobs available to him or her. So it means that you're more than one job available per person, and that by itself should show you that there is a problem. Now, mm. why is there a layoff? At the same time, I have an explanation which I have again talked publicly about is a skill mismatch. So if you're working for a company and you have certain skills which the, comp the company management does not value, you may be looking for a job. They are opening up a job, but the two of you don't match. So it is going to add up to an increase in the unemployment rate. So if you have to come bring down the unemployment rate, you also, in the long term, need to put emphasis on education. Whereas, look at the post-COVID stimulus. I like to say that when Ben Bernanke came in in 2008 and then increased the money supply substantially, he did not change a plumber into a nuclear physicist because the money supply doubled or tripled. The plumber is still a plumber. So the point here is you need the skills which are very much in short supply in different areas, and they are not provided by the stimulus. So I think what's going to happen is that you're going to see more layoffs. They are going to translate eventually into a higher unemployment rate, although they have not. And the experience that we have from 2007, 2008 is once the unemployment rate starts to rise, it increases very rapidly. So if you are at 3.7% unemployment rate now, don't be surprised if in three or four months you reach 4.5% and soon you're hitting 5% as the recession becomes a reality. Yeah, that's a fantastic point. Um, and you're right. And this is another area of, let's just broadly call it public policy, which we have not exactly been hitting the ball out of the park, trying to figure out how to how to skill a workforce or even what a workforce looks like in the future. By the way, completely related to that, uh, we are waiting for big tech earnings after the close. Microsoft looks like it beat estimates as Azure grows faster than expected. That's the headline. We know Mark, Microsoft has been at the forefront of, of this AI revolution that we're just in the early innings of. Looks like Microsoft is up a little bit to flat. A lot of times everyone wants to listen to the conference calls as well. So those details just crossing. Um, we'll keep you posted. And I think a lot of people wanting to hear um, what they have to say and just how profitable AI. So there's a two questions, right, Sri? There's what does AI mean for businesses, for the bottom line? Does it does any CapEx spending they're doing and it translate into actual revenue? That's a that's an investor question. For society, there's a question and what the impact on the economy. And when we're talking about jobs, how unemployment's affected. This is a big unknown for everyone, including the Fed. You know, they're they're trying to extract themselves from unprecedented policy that's still left over from the great financial crisis, where they kind of made a whole new rule book 
and facilities. And now they've got this technological revolution layered on, which we don't know how it's going to impact jobs. We don't know how it's going to impact productivity. And that's another piece of the pie that not, it didn't get a lot of, we've, we talked about this on Real Vision, it didn't get a lot of traction, partially came because it came out before the holidays, but we saw productivity explode last quarter, right? right. Highest right. in three years. How does that plug into how you're thinking about the economy, especially because we don't know what AI is going to do to productivity or if it's feeding into that at all? Because high productivity is a good thing for an economy, right? Right, exactly. Let me, again, I have two parts to my answer. First part, productivity. AI development is going to be immensely helpful for productivity. But also keep in mind, AI is disruptive. Disruptive in the mm -hmm. sense that if you're used to be doing your job in your way for the last 20 or 25 years, when AI comes and makes that job so much easier to do, and for somebody else to do it at less cost than you, you have to find out either whether you can develop a new skill alongside AI or you don't have a position. So productivity increases. It allows for people who have the skill to enjoy phenomenal wage increases. So for instance, uh, average hourly earnings have been increasing at 4.1%, uh, the latest figure. And because of the AI-boosted productivity increase, you were able to have an inflation rate still somewhere in the 3.5-4% range. You are not having inflation much higher than that, which you would have had with a 4.1% wage increase had you not had the productivity surge coming from AI. So that's the one good part. We are already seeing the beneficial impact of what has happened. The second thing I would say is that in terms of uh, productivity improvement and inflation, you will find that you have to keep on improving the productivity in order to keep the inflation rate low. If you mm. don't have changes, then the benefit to it is going to end. The, the comparison I would make in terms of productivity employment is what we saw happen when laptop computers came into being first the big plunkety huge size in the 1980s, and then the size became smaller and smaller. Then people said, well, computers mean I will not have a job anymore. But what they find is if you could work with the computer, you could do a lot more than you could do before. Mm -hmm. So it enhanced your productivity, created new employment. That, I think, is what's going to happen with AI, namely people who are able to harness it who are able to use it for the benefit are going to be able to get so much more done than people who find it as a threat or a competition. We're going to take another quick break to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. That's so interesting. And you're so right. There are two sides to that. We that Exactly why we spend a lot of time talking about AI and looking at the exponential age uh, and and how we how it affects the economy and markets, but also how we interact with it and what we need to know and and sort of continue to grow our our sort of learning curve about it. I have to read this comment from Bo. It made me laugh, but it's so great. The NBA had a Dr. J. I think as far as the markets are concerned, we have Dr. K. So we, <laughs> ag we agree, and I love that, Bo. Thank you for that. Thank you. Thank you so, so much. I want to get your thoughts 
uh, Sri, we've got a, a really good question about China. So I want to get to that. But uh, so as we now have a pretty good sense of your the things that are on your mind for the U.S. economy, what are you thinking about the 10-year bond yield? Where do you think bonds are going? Well, 10-year yield today is around 405. Um, my expectation is that it is still going to be a good investment vehicle. If you have the next two to three years in mind, when the 10-year recently traded at 4.5, even went over 5%, I said it is not going to hit 6 or 7% like some bond pessimists have been saying. Why? Because by the time it hit, goes to that higher level, something will break in the system, mm. and that will bring the Treasury yields down. That's going to be your place of safe haven. So even at 405, I find it very attractive to be in 10-year uh, securities. And that would be, I think, one of the areas that I would go into in terms of protecting myself. So either way, they're moving lower. We have to hope it's for a good reason and not for a, a financial blow-up reason. Right. But I do worry, though, Maggie, that it is not going to be inflation going down to 2% and staying there that's going to bring down the 10-year yield. It is going to be whether a, a problem with another bank failure whether it's a problem on the commercial real estate side or it happens of the credit crunch, or as we saw in September 2019, we had with quantitative tightening taking place at that time in taking baby steps between 2017 and 2019, the short-term money market suddenly blew up. The interest mm -hmm. rate shot up and essentially the Fed stepped in and said they stopped quantitative uh, tightening and moved over to quantitative easing. So that's, again, one other way in which you can have a change in policy, and that might also lead to lower treasury yields. So anything bad happening on the economic side is going to be good for the U.S. Treasury. Good for U.S. Treasury. What about U.S. stocks? Doesn't sound like any of those scenarios are good for U.S. stocks. None of those scenarios, there is one scenario which is actually very good. I've been saying U.S. equities, once they get a hit because of a credit event, are subsequently going to rally when the Fed and Treasury turn on the fiscal and monetary taps and the faucet turns on and you're going to say, forget about inflation. We only need to care about the system and we are going to turn it on. In other words, think about December 2008 to March 2009, interest rates have just come down to zero. We are waiting, and the S&P 500 is heading to its all-time low of 666 in early March of 2009. That's the time for, there was blood on the street. That's the time to be very optimistic because it turned out to be the bottom for equities as well. So mm -hmm. that's where I would watch to see something breaking, allow for a little bit of time to take go by and then watch for the stimulus to pull up the equities again. But you don't think it's anything as, as cataclysmic as what happened during the great financial crisis? No, I don't think so. It doesn't look like it unless it's grossly mismanaged, which I would not uh, put well, beyond scope of reality. But on the normal course, it should not be as bad as it was in 2007, 2008. Gee, the, the, the possibility that it could be mismanaged uh, fills me with fear, I will say, <laughs> uh, given, given again what we see happening on a daily basis. So, uh, Ralph asking, I want to I want to get this in because it's not just about the U.S. We we often spend a lot of time talking about that because it kind of is one of the lead dogs and has huge repercussions. 
um, not just because we're sitting here, but uh, China, massively important. Uh, Ralph asking, do you have any comments on China generally and its real estate sector specifically? We know the courts ordered Evergrande to be wound down this week. How are you thinking about China and that impact on the global economy? China, uh, clearly there are a variety of issues. One is domestic economy-wise. The economy has slowed down. They have never recovered from COVID in a way that the United States and Western Europe did. There was no similar recovery in uh, China. It's been very slight. The second problem they have is the communist administration in Beijing interfering with private businesses. Uh, when, when I say that, think Jack Ma, think yeah. Alibaba. Not only that, even think in terms of a pedestrian occupation like tutoring students to get into college. You wouldn't think the government would interfere in it, but it did because tutoring means it creates class distinctions between the rich and poor, and only the rich can afford to pay for the students, their children, to get the tutoring. So you don't know where the government arms are going to extend. That's the second one. Third, you're going to see the worsening relationship with the US. I am very concerned watching the China-Taiwan relations after the January 13th elections, which brought a pro-independence vice president of the country. He became the president. He was the candidate. And he is probably more pro-independence than his predecessor, uh, the lady President Tsai was before him. So those are the things to watch for. Now, as an investor, what should you be doing with China? I think it is going to take at least one year, probably more than that, to bottom out. At that stage, the valuations would be very attractive. You would probably go in looking at China from, let's say, going in at 2025 and staying in the country till 2030, 2032, five or seven years, it might make sense. Now you're about to catch a falling knife. It's not time yet. And we've, and we've gotten a lot of questions about that. So thank you. Uh, I think this is going to be the last one we can squeeze in. Uh, Sri, don't you think gold is the new anti-fragile uh, in an environment of geopolitical unrest and social unrest? Yeah, gold is very attractive. I like it. We are, it's recently been trading at $2050, $2060 an ounce. Uh, for a while, it had difficulty crossing the $2,000 mark, but I think we are convincingly above it. And if interest rates come down, both in the United States and Western Europe, it is going to make gold even more attractive. As I see it, gold is the only significant competition that the U.S. Treasury has as a safe haven. Mm. You cannot go into German bonds, you can't go into Japanese bonds because they don't exist in big enough numbers. But you can go into US treasuries, it's the largest market in the world, and you can do that. And the second thing you can do is with gold. So I continue to remain bullish on gold, Mandy. Fantastic. It, it, so, Sri, we love that you take the time to really, it's easy to have a knee-jerk, hard landing, soft landing, easing, they shouldn't ease, but you really helped us sort of unpack some of how the Fed looks at these things and works. And I think that's so important going into a really important meeting like this. So we appreciate that. Thank you very much. Good to talk with you always, Maggie. I want to share uh, an extra little thing with everyone before we go. So we always talk about um, 
provide trying to provide everybody with the knowledge like Sheree just did with us, the tools and the network to help you gain financial freedom or at least reduce some of the stress in your life around finances. And this week, uh, this month is education week. And this week, we've been taking a little bit more of a personal look at finances. And I had a great conversation with James Altucher today. I'm not sure if you're familiar with him or not, but um, he's run a hedge fund. He started a bunch of companies, but he's had his fair share of ups and downs. Um, and he's written a lot about that. And he has a lot of thoughts about what you can do to try to grow and build your wealth. I just want to play a little snippet of the conversation we have. So have a listen. So, you know, we worry about money because, and also money is a little bit of a currency of self-worth in, in our society. We, it's a metric like mm. for how intelligent you are, how successful you are, how great you are. Like, look, you know, for, for since the beginning of mankind, it's kind of like a rich versus poor. And I'm not saying this in like a Marxist sense, but in a very capitalist sense that, you know, you, success is measured by how much you accumulate. And, you know, we, we have to fight that urge. Yeah, that not, is... nothing wrong with having a lot of money. In fact, that's been a goal of my life for my entire life. But we just have to put it in perspective. I just love the conversation. And it was once again, sort of much like my conversation with Jared, leaning into an optimism uh, that I think is really needed. Um, and there's a, just a lot of great wisdom in there. So please leave some comments. We're super interested to hear what you have to say and your thoughts on this topic. Um, and I'll be catching up with Raul later this week to talk to him about this, um, which will be super interesting. Uh, so be sure to check it out. If you are watching on YouTube and you do not have a Real Vision membership, you can get one. Just go over to our website and sign up so you can see all this great material. Thanks, everybody. Love talking to Sri. We will be back same time tomorrow. In the meantime, take care and good luck out there. Hey, everybody. Today's Real Vision Daily Briefing is sponsored by Engrave, maker of the coldest hardware wallet, Zero, and stainless steel backup graphene. Engrave brings you the highest security in a touchscreen experience to safely manage all your crypto offline. Enjoy a 10% Real Vision discount in engrave.io shop with the code REALVISION.